We'll turn back, please, to the passage which has been read in your hearing, Revelation chapter 2. And I just am going to read again verse 24 through 28. We'll be looking at the whole passage this evening, but we're just going to read that little section before we turn to the preaching this evening. So the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to his people in the church at Thyatira. And in that way, we ought to think the Lord Jesus is speaking to us. Because this is what he gave John to write to the church. But I, that's Jesus, I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds unto the end, to him... I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this evening, we are coming to a passage in the book of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches, which is quite an awesome section. It's the kind of thing that we would not expect the Lord Jesus to say to a true church. We would not expect to see happening the kinds of things which are recorded here. But these things, brethren, like all of the scriptures, are recorded for our instruction, our admonition, for our guidance. It ends with that common call in all the seven letters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is what God is saying to his churches. And he says it again and again and again. Every time the this portion of the word of God is written. So we come to examine this portion. It is a, it is a, a dense portion, if I may uh, say it that way. A, there's a lot of material here, and I don't intend to be long this evening, but to try to cover it as uh, accurately as I can, and as briefly as is consistent with accuracy. So that's, that's my task, and I'm sure if you ever thought about leading a Bible study or explaining this to somebody, you would say, well, this is a, this is quite a weighty task, and it is. And our need is for God's help. So we're going to follow basically the same kind of path that I have been following in each of the seven letters. And I hope it doesn't become tedious to you or boring to you, but it's the best way I know to get all of the material before us and have it explained. We're going to look at the city of the church. That's always my, my first point. The city of the church. What was this city like? What was it like to live in Thyatira in the first century? The end of the first century. 
Then we're going to look at Christ's self-description, as he does in every church. He describes himself. He presents something from chapter 1 already. Spoken in chapter 1, he presented to the church in a way that actually fits that church. That's what he's doing. Christ, the city of the church, Christ's self-description, Christ's commendation of the church. Woe be to that church that Christ has no commendation for. He has a commendation, an impressive commendation for the church. And then there is a criticism of the church, and I'll explain that word criticism in a, in, when I get to that point, the Christ's criticism of the church, including his judgment of the church. Then we're going to look at Christ's vital lesson for all the churches. Very interesting, in the middle of this letter, he has uh, a word for the churches, as he does at the end. Then we have the uh, the word, Christ's word to the faithful in the church. You know that he addresses the sinful in the church, but the faithful in the church he addresses. And then his call to attention, Christ's call to attention. So we take up these matters one at a time, God helping us. So first of all, the city of the church, Thyatira, the city of the church. The churches of Asia Minor each had something which caused the inhabitants to be proud. Um, in uh, in places like New York City, people people have these uh, things on bumper stickers up. I love New York, and I'm sure that in Los Angeles they have a bumper sticker that doesn't say "I love New York." It says "I love Los Angeles." I love Chicago. And, uh, and the great singers of our day, they write songs, you know, about how much they love a particular city. That kind of pride existed in the first century as people lived in a certain town. They had, they had bragging rights about certain things. And every, every city had reasons to be proud and confident about themselves and their city. I'm a New Yorker. Uh, they, in my state, there's a little, there's a bumper sticker. I'm a Jersey girl, right? Uh, I love the Jersey beach, things like that. In the case of this city, this was a city of commerce. It was not the only one in Asia Minor like this, but it was a city of commerce. Now, William Hendrickson wrote, wrote this book entitled More Than Conquerors. If I had to recommend just one book on the book of Revelation to you, it would be William Hendrickson's More Than Conquerors. It's an excellent book, an excellent exposition, a thematic exposition of the book of Revelation. Very sane, very sound. So I give it my hearty commendation. He has a description of the city and what it was like to be a Christian in the city. And I'm going to read you a very small paragraph on that. He does it. He does a better job than I could do it in a couple of minutes. So here's what he says. Being a center of communication, with many people passing through it, Thyatira became a trading city. Here were to be found the trade guilds, woodworkers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, etc. These trade guilds were associated with the worship of tutelary deities. A tutelary de deity, we don't use that word too much in our day, is a deity that protected the people of that trade. 
It was like their uh, their God, the God for wool workers or leather workers. They had specific gods who were to favor them. You want to be an, a successful wood uh, wool maker, then you you worship that God. That was what they did. Each guild had its guardian god. The situation, therefore, was somewhat as follows. If you wish to get ahead in this world, you must belong to a guild. If you belong to a guild, your very membership implies that you worship its god. You will be expected to attend the guild festivals and eat food, part of which was offered to the tutelary deity and which you receive on your table as a gift from the god. So you couldn't really be a part of that trade without sitting down, probably in a worship center, and eat a meal that was supplied to you by the God. That's the way you were to think of it. So prayers would be given to the God who provided for you. And then, when the feast ends, and the real grossly immoral fun begins, you must not walk out unless you desire to become an object of ridicule and persecution. So this is what it was like to be a Christian in Thyatira, and to be a member of the working class, the member of a guild, there would be pressure, constant pressure, to idolatry and to fornication. That's that's what it would be. It's not unlike our world today. It's not unlike the large corporations of America. You are expected to go out drinking and to go out partying and to commit immoral acts. And if you don't, you must be either very good or very poor. That's what it was like in Thyatira. Very difficult. Peter has something like this when he describes the plight of Christians in just a couple of pages back in 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 5. This this is something that was not limited to Thyatira. Notice what Peter says to the Christians he writes to in his first letter, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Be willing to suffer. In other words, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. And you can see that in Thyatira. You're going to suffer because you're not going to sin. You're not going to give in to sin. You're not going to live in sin. That, uh, verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same degree, the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. They shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter says this is what it's like being a Christian in our in the at the end of the first century. They want you to go along with them, to go bowling with them, to go to the bar with them, and to eventually 
took uncleanness with them. That's the city of Thyatira. Secondly, we're going to look at Christ's self-description as he speaks to the people who inhabit this place, the Christians who inhabit this place. He describes himself at the end of verse 18. These things right saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. This self-description has great meaning for the people in the church at Thyatira. It speaks of his majestic deity. Jesus puts it forward. The first thing he wants them to remember about him is that he is the son of God. He is God the son, the second person of the Trinity. And they are not dealing with someone who is just older and smarter than them, has been a believer longer than them. This is the eternal son of God. And they are to take his words with all of the seriousness of hearing the Son of God. We, I, I appreciate the fact that as we approach the Word of God, we do so with reverent seriousness. I, I hear it in the way we introduce our reading of the Scriptures, the way we pray about the reading of the Scriptures. We're coming before the Word of God. Well, that's what Jesus is telling them. And as it were, he's telling them, you, you really better not forget it. It's a very dangerous thing to forget that the Word of God is the living Word of God. And so he identifies himself in this way, thus says the Son of God. Uh, they're dealing with one entitled to all reverence. He has the highest authority in heaven and earth. And he tells about his eyes. And in, in the first chapter, John says he has eyes like a flame of fire. In other words, there's this seriousness and there is intensity in Jesus' face. There's the piercing ability to see everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. His feet are described the way they are to impress them with, as it were, speed and power. His feet are like bronze. Uh, my translation has burnished bronze, fine bronze. Uh, you, you, you can't stop a bronze foot. It's fast. It's powerful. When it steps on, it crushes. Nothing can stop it. And that is, again, the impression that the people of God are to think about when they hear this description of the Lord Jesus Christ. What the people in Thyatira, the Christians in Thyatira, are being reminded of is that those who truly fear him, the Son of God, with eyes like a flame of fire, with feet of brass, is one to be feared. He is one to be believed, but dear brethren, make no mistake, he is one to be feared as well. People who suppose that they can get away with sin are fools, especially given the fact that so much of this letter is dealing with awful sins. So it's very serious. That's Christ's self-description. The third thing we're going to consider is Christ's commendation of the church in verse 19. His commendation of the church in verse 19. It's an impressive commendation. I wonder if that, if you got that when uh, our brother read this particular verse in verse 19. I'm going to 
read it in a slightly different way because I'm giving you uh, uh, another possible translation. I think it's a decent translation. He writes, I know about you. I know about you. He says, I know you. And he says, I know about you, the works and the love and the faith and the service and the perseverance. That's exactly how the Greek runs. The word your is not in each in each little phrase. It's these are the things that you do. The works, the things that you do in service. The love, the love you bear to the living God, the love you bear to your brethren. I see this. It's real. It's true. And I see the faith that you have. You believe the word of God. When the word of God is written, you don't sit there and wonder, well, really, is, is that right? No. If it's there in the word of God, it's right. That's the faith. The faith you have in God's salvation and in the hope of eternal life. The faith you have. It's, just, it's real. It's there. And I see the service. There are the activities which are done in order to please God, to help the brethren, and to please God and further his kingdom. That's the service that you do. And the perseverance. These people didn't stop. When a little bit of work was done in the church, and then uh, they sit back and they say, well, you know, we, we did that. We did something. At least we did something. No, there was a real dedication to service again and again and again. But these are the attainments of the people of God in the church at Thyatira. It is an impressive list of attainments. But the Lord Jesus doesn't stop commending them there. He goes further. And remember, here's the thing that we must not miss. You might say, well, he's just getting them ready for the bad news. It's a sense of which that's true. But that's not all he's doing. When Jesus commends, he commends genuinely. And that's why the end of the letter comes with the power that it does. Because these commendations are genuine commendations from the head of the church. Well, uh, the, 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 the last commendation is this. In addition to all of these things, he says that your works for the Lord were greater than in previous times. Probably the first things. And uh, the, the commentators will tell you that uh, Christians, when they're first converted, are on fire. And they want to do something for the Lord. I remember in the early days of my Christian life, when I first went to my home church, I remember asking our pastor Martin, what can I do? And he kind of disappointed me. The very good answer, he said, you can pray. Very, very good, very wise answer for me and for the people of God. But their works were greater than formerly. They're getting better. They're doing more. They're manifesting more of the fruits of the Spirit. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with that commendation. It's not a problem with the commendation. It's the problem with the reality of the brethren. The danger is that these attainments and the increase of good things could easily mask the awful sin and danger in the church. These people might reason this way. I've heard this kind of language from Christians in various places. Sure, 
we have our problems. We're not a perfect church. Let's face it, there is no perfect church. That's true, isn't it? It's true. They, they could say this, we have our problems, but look at all the good we do. Surely, there cannot be anything seriously wrong in our church, can there? Surely, we've read about how Jesus says, I have this against you, I have this against you. Surely, there cannot be anything that the Lord would have against us. You get that, brethren? You see that? You see how these attainments, the faith and love and service and perseverance would mask it. Everything's fine at Thyatira Baptist Church. Well, this is a great deception which exposes them to great danger. And we must ourselves be aware of this. We love our church. I'll tell you, I love City View Baptist Church. That's why I'm here every chance I get. I love City View Baptist Church. But nevertheless, brethren, we need to have our eyes open. It's like a parent with children. Uh, it's easy to see the good things our children do and to love our children uh, and to think well of them. Uh, J.C. Ryle said, I'd rather speak to some people about anything but their children. But parents need to have their eyes open. They need to understand what may be wrong. And so it must be in the church. That's the, that's the third thing. Christ's impressive commendation of the church in verse 19. Now, the next thing, the fourth thing, is Christ's criticism of the church in verses 20 to 23a. His criticism starts in verse 20, goes to the middle of verse 23, and includes his threatened judgment. The word criticism has an interesting use in the English language. Uh, the one we're most familiar with is, uh, is when I make a meal and my wife criticizes it. Or when I preach a sermon and my wife criticizes it. I, 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 I take it gladly because my wife can catch things. She knows my weaknesses and she can catch things that other people don't catch. So when she criticizes me, I have both ears open. But criticism uh, has, has, a, has two senses. It can be positive, it can be negative, or it can be both. In this case, it's, you know what kind of a criticism this is. This is a, a purely negative criticism. There's nothing positive about it. It's wholly critical, as it ought to be, because the church is in tremendous danger here, I could, I could say, I think it's true, that other churches are in worse shape than Thyatira, but Thyatira is in bad shape. So here are awful sins. We might call them, brethren, unimaginable sins. You can't imagine that this would happen on Flatbush Avenue at this address. You can't imagine that. That this would happen here at City View Baptist Church. This was extensive and it was awful. There was a woman who was out of control in a pursuit of sin and in her commitment to sin.
tell you that I love your church and I love our Christian women. I love the modesty that most, marks most of our women. I, I deeply appreciate it. It is an honor to Christ. That was not what's going on in Thyatira. This is not a, a modest woman. She uses a wicked claim to support her foul sins and her putrefying influence. Read the words again with me. The Lord Jesus says, and, and by the way, I'm going to correct the King James, if I may, having studied the Greek. It says, notwithstanding, I have a few things. That word few is not in the Hebrew, in the Greek text. It is not. It's not I have a few things. It says, I have something against you because you sufferest that woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants and to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. She did not want to repent. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. She wants to be in a bed. I'll cast her into a bed, says Jesus. And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. This is not probably her literal offspring. This is probably other women, other people, may probably include other men, who support her views because she's a prophetess. She can tell you how this conduct is consistent with the revelation of God. So she claimed, you see. So she claimed. And she uses this wicked claim that she's a prophetess to support her foul sins and her spreading, infecting influence. And the leaders of the church should at least have challenged her claim to be an instrument of revelation. That's what she claimed. She said, God speaks through me. And God tells you to do the things that I say you should do. Don't worry about the guilt. Don't worry about the idolatry. Don't worry about the immorality. Participate in it. This is your liberty. Brethren, there are people who are saying that today in the name of Christ. There are people who are saying those things. One of the brethren made me aware of a book written by a professing Christian espousing that Christ has a care for his transgender children. That's the kind of thing that's happened. And so her wickedness spread, as it will in all such cases. There are some sins, brethren, that uh, uh, Paul says are like leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. It's infectious. It's a cancer. It kills. And so she was wrong. The people who committed immoral acts with her were wrong. The people who ate things sacrificed to idols were wrong. And again, if I were a leader in Thyatira at this point, my face would be beat red. Because 
One of Jesus' criticisms is you sufferest. You allow, you permit. Somebody might say, well, we didn't do nothing. That's the problem. You didn't do nothing. She should have been confronted. She should have been opposed. She should have been disciplined by the church and excommunicated by the church. But they did not. They just sat back and left her alone. That's part of Jesus' criticism, his withering criticism of the, of the church. So they did not, they were not faithful to Christ because they didn't do anything to stop it. Sin, brethren, needs to be opposed. It needs to be exposed. Paul tells the Christians in Ephesus have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Bring them to light. Show the wrong. Take a stand for Christ. Well, one of the, one of the interesting things about the passage that we, we learn about our Lord Jesus Christ and his ways. You, you read, we read the Bible. I hope that you pray this way. Lord, teach us your ways. What are you like? We want to know more of you. We want to know more of you as well. Here's something about the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how Jesus governs his churches. How he purifies his churches. Before taking the most desperate action, the most awful, fearful action, the Lord allowed the woman to stop and repent. I gave her time to repent. My translation puts it, she did not want to repent of her actions. She didn't want to. His forbearance should have softened her sin-hardened heart. Because the Lord Jesus did not immediately, immediately judge her and destroy her and her friends. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I, it has happened to me where I was guilty of a particular sin. And I was surprised that nothing happened. I said, well, the Lord should have certainly done something. I deserve his chastisement for my sin. But there's there's none of that. Well, why is, well, what Paul tells us in Romans 2, 4, is that the kindness of God is intended to lead us to repentance. So when you commit a sin, and you don't see any ill effects from that sin. You don't think, well, Christ must be fine with that. No, if it's sin, God is not fine with it. Jesus is not fine with it. But he's giving you time to repent. Dear brethren, take that to heart. When you sin and you see no results from it, remember, Jesus is being kind to you, very kind to you. Come to... Another text, a little bit about this. But she, what happens, you see, because the Lord gave her space to repent, it revealed her love of her sins. She didn't want to repent. She didn't reason, well, now, you see, my sins are so serious. Surely she must know reading her Bible, hearing uh, God's servants, but it just unveils the love of her sins. The pride of success in sin leads to increasing boldness. And that's, what, that's one of the dangers, brethren, that we should fear, really fear, 
that when God does not put his chastening hand upon us, it will lead to increasing boldness apart from the grace of God. Well, it may seem hard to think how a true church of Jesus Christ can have members who sin so boldly and so awfully. Well, don't think that way. Don't be surprised when sin breaks out, when people's secret sins are revealed, when your pastor has to stand up and tell you, this is what is happening and this is what we must deal with. Don't be surprised, brethren. There is a cunning devil who is able to trap people in their sins. And he is an expert in making sin appear different than its real colors. He'll tell you why it's fine. It's okay. And then there is remaining sin. You need to understand just how powerful our inclination to sin is. Very powerful, brethren. And the difference between us and the Jezebel of Thyatira is the grace of God. The difference between us and Judas Iscariot is the grace of God. And there are other examples in the church and other churches that teach us that these things can happen and can do great damage. Again, I know I keep saying it, I don't care, I don't mind. I love City View Baptist Church. I love it. I, I deeply appreciate the fellowship we share, the worship that we share, the love of the Word of God that we share. We can't be careless though. We have to keep our eyes wide open and we need to be prayerful. We need to watch and pray. What Jesus said to the disciples in the garden, Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Well, the inaction of the leaders and the members and the action of this woman led to awful judgments from Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ tells the church what's going to happen probably very soon after this letter is written. He, is, he tells them, I will cast her into a bed and then they commit adultery with her. If she wasn't married, her boyfriends were. And I'm going to throw them into great tribulation except they repent of their deeds and I will kill her children with death. He promises extensive final judgment upon them. And there is, again, and there are important lessons here for us. Important lessons. Lessons for all the churches. Here's a lesson for us before we descend to the next statement of the Lord Jesus. An important lesson for us. We should beware when women aspire to places of leadership in the church. Now, if you're a young girl, you must not misunderstand. You must not think that I don't like women. I'm, a, I'm you know, one of those women haters. Abbott and Costello had a women's haters club. 
that they formed. I'm not a woman hater. The Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus, are not women haters. But it's dangerous, dangerous. All ambition is dangerous. It's dangerous when men are ambitious for leadership and prominence and success. It's dangerous. You have diatrophies who love to be first among them and fell into awful sins. We should beware. When women want to aspire to a, pro a place of prominence, prominent leadership, many people are offended by what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I invite you to turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. 1 Timothy chapter 2. He's talking about how he wants the roles people he wants to have in the church. If you're a church member here and you're wondering, what does God want me to do? I suggest 1 Timothy 2 might be an, a, a good place to start. But notice what Paul says. I'll start back in, um, in verse 8. I want the men to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, what's a woman's role in the church, in the, in the broad scheme of it? In like manner, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becomes women professing godliness with good works. What does God want you to do as a woman? Dress modestly, do good works. Let women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. And then he roots it in the creative work of God. For Adam was first formed then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved, etc. But the point here is, Paul says, women should not be preachers. Women should not be adult Sunday school class teachers in a mixed group. He says, I want women to receive instruction with entire submissiveness. A lot of women today are offended. And a lot of men are offended today by what Paul states here. And it has never been rescinded. There has never been a third Timothy that says, okay, uh, things have changed, times have changed, and now women can take these prominent places. Well, I could say much more about this. I might say, like, remember Miriam in the Old Testament, who stood up against her brother Moses and said, hasn't God given us his Holy Spirit too? You can hear Jezebel and Thyatira saying, hasn't the Holy Spirit been given to us too? It is dangerous when women aspire aspire to and strive for leadership. Church history has examples of this thing. Men like Edward Irving, do a little research on Edward Irving, the earliest man of a Pentecostal strike. And the women who supported him and he supported. Well, 
That is really the heart of the letter in verses 20 to 23, a Christ's criticism, serious, serious criticism of the church in Thyatira. The fifth thing is Christ's vital lesson for all churches in verse 23b. He says, after he says the last thing down, I'm going to kill our children with death, he says, and all the churches will know, not might know, or you need to know, all the churches will know, because Christ take action, that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give to every one of you according to your works. So, what Jesus wants us at City View Baptist Church to know, what he wants Trinity Baptist Church to know, what he wants the church in Zimbabwe to know is this. He knows your conduct, your truest attitude toward your sins. He knows the deepest secrets of the soul. He is ever looking at the hearts of his people. And he knows his people through and through. And he will give to all according to their works. Now, this is an interesting thing because, again, the modern evangelical church is all upset about works. We're not justified by works, so our works are unimportant. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, I know your works, and you know what? It doesn't matter anymore. I died on the cross to pay for your sinful works. That's not what Jesus says. You might say, that's good theology. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He still knows them. And he still deals with us faithfully according to our sins. He gives to men, he gives to Christians all according to their works. He can be patient, he will be merciful, he will deal faithfully with us. Sometimes he will bring on our lives the most painful judgments. Let me tell you, Christian, let's get this part straight. It's very important for us. Jesus and God the Father will deal with us in this life in the judgment of our works. He's, he's, going to take, he's going to take notice of our works. And he's going to deal faithfully with us. Not the way we are. We will be most pleased. But the way that we need. True believers will know chastisements. They will. True believers will know the chastisements of God. It was the Apostle Paul, for example. I'll give you a couple of examples. So you say, okay, Brother Frank, you're preaching the Word of God. Now show me the Word of God. I'm going to show you. Acts, I won't turn you there. I'll, I'll quote them for you. You can look at them. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. When, I'm sorry, Acts chapter, uh, uh, well, Acts 8, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I haven't forgotten that part. There is no condemnation. Christians who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will not suffer in hell. They will not go to hell. Christ will not abandon them to hell. There's no condemnation because you died for our sins. But still, when Paul was converted and Ananias was sent to him, remember this, Ananias is sent to deal with Paul. And when Jesus appears to Ananias and says, go to, go to this man's soul of Tarsus, he says, you don't know. It's very, it's almost comical. 
that Ananias should tell Jesus what he doesn't know about Paul. But one of the things that he says to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. He's made others suffer. He's not going to hell, but he's going to suffer. And Paul suffered a big time. No complaints. <laughs> and then there was Peter. Peter who denied Christ three times. And then in John 21, Jesus restores him. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus tells him, when you were young, Peter, you used to bind yourself, put on your belt, and go wherever you wish. Now, when you are old, someone else will bind you and take you where you don't want to go. And Peter suffered martyrdom for Jesus Christ to show to the world that he loved his Savior and he was committed to him to death. That was a chastisement. A good chastisement. Here's the principle of God's dealings with us, brethren, in Hebrews chapter 12. And I invite you to turn here for a moment. This is the lesson that Jesus is teaching to the churches when he tells them, everyone's going to know who I am and how I deal with my people. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. He tells these Christians he's writing to, you have not yet resisted to blood, striving against sin. And uh, implicitly, you need to. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as unto children. What does God say to his children? To us, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Are you a child of God? Are you one of his beloved children? Has Jesus died for your sins? Well, then he chastens you. That's what he does with his children. Children? Uh, I had a mom who had a big belt and she knew how to use it. And when I sinned, my mom took out her big belt and walloped me with it. And I loved her. And I thanked her. She loved me. She cared about me. I was not going to be a wild boy running the streets. That's what God does. He scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there who his father does not chasten? You can read the rest of the passage. Chastening is part of the Christian life. God loves us, so he chases us. That's part of Christ's vital lesson for the church in verse 23b. He sees us, he chastens us. Well, there's a word then, there's a word then to the faithful in the church in Revelation chapter 2. Christ's word to the faithful of the church in verses 24 to 28. And again, I'm not going to say everything about this section, but it is a vital part. But I say to you, unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, 
I will put on you no other burden. They should have said something. They shouldn't have sat still and let it go. Lord Jesus Christ is dealing with it now. And what about, what about you? What about these Christians who didn't participate in the abominable idolatries, who didn't eat things sacrificed to idols, who didn't commit acts of fornication and adultery? What about them? Very interesting. Christ doesn't tell them, leave the church. Christ doesn't tell them, I'm going to remove your candlestick out of your mouth. He's not going to tell them what he tells Laodicea. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. He tells his believing, obedient people, hold fast what you have until I come. Hold on to the doctrine. Hold on to the right practice. Hold on to purity and sanctification and holiness. Hold on to faith and perseverance and service. Hold what you have. Don't stop. Continue on. Let nothing impede you from doing the will of Christ. They would see judgments come. It would be grievous. But there was no unnecessary judgments on them. I knew a boy whose mom, like mine, used to go off and start swinging her belt. And every time she did, he winced. Because he said, okay, she's got, she gets going like that, and I'm probably going to get some licks as well, though I didn't do nothing. Christ is not like that. You're the child of God. You may rest peacefully when Christ starts swinging his belt. One of my pastors was preaching one time out of the Gospel of Mark about the Gerasene demoniac, and he compared it to rock music, and he applied it to his church. I was sat there and listened to the sermon. He told them, that's evil. Your children should not be listening to that, and you are to control what they listen to as well as what they do. And some of those parents went home and told their parents, you don't need to listen to what pastor said. The next day, next Sunday, I was there in the auditorium when he stood up in the pulpit and told what he had heard and he told them what he thought faithfully. He said, liver, lily-livered, spineless wonders who won't take a stand for the word of God but they are more afraid of their children than the word of God. And I sat there and I said, thank God, not me, not me. That's not, that's not how I'm conducting my family. But you see, that whip, as it were, that belt had an impact upon me. It created gratitude and peace. This is Christ's faithful word to his people as his faithful word to us. Hold fast what you have until I come. Keep his works of faith and service. You will receive blessings of rule in the eternal state. And I'm not saying too much about these ending verses, about he who overcomes will. I might do a separate sermon on that. These are all blessings of salvation that in a very real sense all believers receive. They receive rule with Christ. Paul tells even the Corinthians, 
Don't you know that we'll judge angels? That's the rule that he's speaking about here. And he says, I give the bright morning star. The morning star is nothing other than Jesus himself in Revelation 22, 16. I am the bright morning star. All Christians are going to receive that when they get to heaven. They're going to receive Christ and blessing in him. Well, the last thing this evening is Christ's call to attention. And some of the letters you may have noticed that the call to attention comes before the rewards. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes. Here it comes after the he who overcomes. At the very end, it's Christ's call to attention. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says it for the very end. All that he has revealed in this letter to the churches, the churches need to pay attention to. And what it means, dear brethren, as I've already said, Say again, we should never think that something like this cannot happen to our church. We should never think this can't happen in City View Baptist Church. God helping us when that pops its head up, when that starts to spread, we will take action. We will take the part of Christ. We will follow the word of God. All that he has revealed in this letter, we should pay attention to the church. You should. We need the grace of God to keep us from these awful sins. We need to watch and pray. We need to get before God and say, Lord, help me. Teach me. Show me. Look at look at the last thing. Psalm 19. Read a couple of verses from Psalm 19. Because this is the right attitude we should have Toward the prospect, could it happen to us? Could it happen to our church? Could it happen to me? Well, Psalm 19 is very helpful from verse 7 on. This is a Psalm of David. And of course, David found out what this was really like because of his sins. He said, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That's what we have today. With, here in Revelation 2, we have the law of the Lord. It's perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, that much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the honeycomb. When you receive the word of God, like Revelation 2, 18 and following, it's sweet, it's good for your soul. It's converting, it's guiding, it's warning. Verse 11, moreover by them is your servant warned, and keeping them is great reward. And now, what David says at the end of the psalm is self-examination and the fear of God. Notice, who can discern his errors? Errors that wander aside from the right way. Who can figure out, where am I going wrong? Who can discern his errors? Well, the answer is, cleanse me, Lord, from hidden secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. You can bet your bottom dollar that Jezebel never prayed that prayer. 
Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be upright and I shall be innocent from great transgression. And so he prays at the end, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. This is the kind of prayer that we ought to be praying on a regular basis. Lord, I can't see all my sin. We see a small portion of our sins. Jesus sees it all. He sees it from its very beginning, the small seedling in the heart. We need to pray to him, Lord, show me. Show me my hidden faults. Keep me back from those bold sins which push forward and push the word of God aside and pursue unrighteousness. Lord, keep me. If you don't keep me, Lord, I'm lost. I'm like Peter on the waves. Help, Lord, I perish. So, dear brethren, we should not just look at our graces and our virtues. We should see them and thank God for them. We may still have great faults, even though we have much grace. We should pray God would help us. Let's pray now. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for this particular portion of your holy word. It is grievous and shameful, and so are all of our sins. We pray that you would cleanse us from every sin, set us free from every inclination to sin. Many of us, Lord, know how wayward we can be and how attractive sin can be. And we pray that you would purify us and wash us and keep us because our whole hope is found that you are our God. So give us ears to hear, help us to take these things to heart, Give us joy as we seek to walk in your ways. Receive our thanks for your presence with us this evening. We pray in your own blessed name. Amen.